The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's pray together. Lord, our souls do cry out, Hallelujah. We see your glory all around us in your creation. And now as we look to this book, may we know it's not like any other book. That this is the living book that reads us. And I pray that you would speak to us and that we would humble ourselves under your word. Show us who Jesus is. May he become greater. May we become less. May we become more like you and may we see your glory sanctify us in the truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going through the Gospel of Matthew and we're not ducking any passages. And sometimes passages are hard and this is a hard passage. This is John the Baptist's message and it's a strong word. Have you ever had somebody give you bad news that actually turned out to be really good news? We were going down memory lane recently with my parents. My dad and mom were telling me this story of Christmas cantata up in Lisbon when my parents used to go to church at the Liberty Baptist Church and my mom was on the the front row in the choir in this Christmas cantata some years ago and she started to feel dizzy And she thought she must have just been taking in too much air. And so she slowed down a little bit and it wasn't getting better. And the police officer happened to be in the front row and he could see what was going on. And it's amazing how these medical people or people that know have an eye for when something's not right. Trust your instincts. And he booked it up on the stage and caught her before she fell. And as she went down, and my dad was in the back, he booked it up from the back of the church, but she fainted, and she had to, you know, be looked at, and when the, went to the doctor, the doctor, you know, everything was checking out, her EKG and everything looked good, but he, he thought, you know, we should just get a scan, chest scan, just to make sure everything's good. And this was totally not related to her fainting at all, but what they found was a little spot. Now, I'm not a, a doctor, so if you want the details, you can ask Tom and Sherry Pulaski, because they used to do this stuff, but... There's five lobes, there's three on one side and two in the other with the lungs. Well, the one where there's three, at the very bottom, there was a little spot. And uh, they said, you know, we're going to need to go in and get that spot. And so then when they went in to get it, they couldn't tell if it was cancerous or not. And so while my mom was still under, the doctor came out and basically asked my dad, to make a decision, basically, do you want us to take out this thing or not? They'd done the biopsy, and, you know, and so my dad's like, you know, here I'm a mechanic for a living, you know, like, you know, all of a sudden you're put in this position where you got to make this incredible decision, and so he asked a very wise question. If this was your wife, Doc, what would you do? And, you know, they decided, we're going to take out that, that one lobe, Okay, so when they took out that lobe, they caught it so early, and whatever that was, and, and um, that she's, she still gets a scan every six months or so, but she didn't have to do radiation, didn't have to do chemo. She had a divine faint 
that was bad news initially, very scary, that turned out to be the best news because she's fine to this day because the Lord did something supernaturally that initially seemed bad. All of that's preparatory work to say, this is a hard word. And if you don't see this as John the Baptist is coming and he's telling everybody to repent. You don't tell everybody to repent unless they're doing something wrong. So the assumption is, is that everybody has to repent because the king has come and the king is bringing in his kingdom. So let's give attention to the message that hopefully the bad news will become the best news we've ever heard. Matthew 3, let's pick it up from there. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his, ba- his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, John the Baptist's message here is a powerful message. And, you know, as I kind of work through a text, if you're wondering, you know, doing a Bible study, one of the first things I like to do is mine the imperatives. Dig up the imperatives. What are the commands of the text? What is the text commanding? And there are four imperatives in this text. Repent. That's an imperative. Everybody's called to repent. And then prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's two more imperatives. And then we get another imperative to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 8 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So we have four imperatives, and then we have two illustrations. This is a sermon here that John the Baptist is giving here as message, and it's filled with lively imagery. And it's the imagery of the axe, and the imagery of the pitchfork. And it's the imagery of a tree, whether it's bearing fruit and the pitchfork related to wheat and chaff. And so we have four imperatives, two illustrations, and John the Baptist is coming with uh, this baptism of repentance. And it's, it's like papers are being served and everybody's being summoned to court because they're guilty. The king is coming, you're not ready, everybody in the water. You see, the idea is that pros- proselytes or Gentiles who converted to, to Judaism, 
They were baptized because they were considered unclean, and the water symbolized the washing to make them clean. And here John is proclaiming this baptism of repentance, and the Jews themselves had become elitist in their thinking, and they were taking great pride in their heritage that they were physical descendants of Abraham, and that's why, therefore, they had favor with God. They were looking to their pedigree, and therefore they needed to repent because they too were filthy inwardly. And the way to demonstrate repentance was for them to come like the foreigners, come like the pagans, get baptized as you're unclean. Tim Keller, who was pastor up in Redeemer Church in New York City, puts it like this. John the Baptist comes and says something incredible. He basically says, all must be baptized. He says, I want you to see there were two things that were utterly shocked, that would have utterly shocked every member of that crowd. First of all, they knew about baptism because when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, the Gentile had to be baptized. And so the reason the Gentile had to be baptized was simply this. The Gentile had been living an immoral life, a nasty life, a bad life. Therefore, the bath represented something. When you take a bath, you're acknowledging the fact you're not fit for the presence of others. You're acknowledging the fact that you stink. You're acknowledging the fact that you're ugly. You have all this stuff on you. You want to look good. You want to get your pores clean. You want to smell good. You take a bath. To take a bath is to acknowledge the fact that you're not fit for the presence of others. You're polluted. You're unclean. When the Gentiles were baptized, they understood that. Jews were not baptized. But along comes John the Baptist, and he says, everybody in the water. Repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is a is at hand. Everybody's called to repentance. That's the first imperative here. The king is here. Repent. You can't say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and not go about conforming your life to his standards. So what does this look like? You know, what does it look like? Well, let me just give you a little bit of a paradigm of what repentance looks like. When the adulterer gets saved, he repents and quits practicing adultery. When the fornicator meets Christ, he stops fornicating and sleeping with his boyfriend or girlfriend. When the gossiper comes to Jesus, he begins to put a muzzle on their their tongue and they stop gossiping. The hateful people by nature become now loving by nature. The jealous and envious person repents and now starts to grow in contentment. The people-pleaser person by nature, who's always worried about people, now becomes a God-pleaser and is now worried about how do I please the Lord. The lustful pleasure-seeker becomes a God-seeker, finding a superior pleasure in God where his satisfaction is found. The proud person starts to become a humble person. The lazy lives become diligent. The angry becomes meek. The impatient becomes patient. The harsh become gentle. The mean become kind. The fool becomes wise. The worry wart trusts God. The perfectionist finds perfection in Christ. The control freak lets go and submits to God. The embittered heart forgives. The wife finds a strange joy in submitting to her husband, and a husband's find her joy in sacrificially loving their wives, and children obey their parents as they see God's appointed authority structure over them. And we begin to sing new songs, and we begin to pray different prayers, and we begin to lead different lives, and we live for a different king, and we live for a different kind of righteousness, his and not ours. 
So when he says repent, it means we change. There's a change that happens from the inside out. And it doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden these perfect people. I mean, Martin Luther's first thesis of the 95 is when our Lord and Master said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. It's ongoing. What do we do every day? We have to repent. There I go again. I wake up every day as wanting to be king of the universe and wanting to give Jesus the Heisman. Stiff arm, I don't need you, I can do this. And I have to repent every day. If you think of repentance as a triangle, there will be three angles, each with an R, if you like to write these down with your triangle. The first first angle of this triangle is remorse, a regret over sin. That's the beginning of repentance, is that we're truly sorry, and we have a sorrow for what we've done wrong in the eyes of God. Usually shame in the Bible is a bad thing, and something that, you know, Jesus comes to save us from. But actually, if we have no shame, that's really scary. The Bible says about unbelievers that they actually glory in their shame. There's something healthy about, in Romans 6, it says, now... You're ashamed of these things that you used to do. And that's a good thing to be ashamed of. So the the very first beginning of repentance is a shame and and remorse and regret. That's actually not a bad thing. We're ashamed of our sin, but that shame is not a worldly sorrow that leads to death, but a godly sorrow that leads to life. The second angle in that triangle of repentance is a repudiation or renouncing of the sin. This is just simply, we, we are agreeing with God that it is wrong, and we join up with God's team, and we look at our hearts and we say, you know what, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to put you to death, you've been bringing me down, and I'm agreeing with God now that you got to go, flesh, and we're going to put this to death today. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So by the Spirit now, we agree with God, these things got to go. And every day there's things that have to go as we're being tender to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so the last angle is just simply a returning to God. We do the 180 and rotating away from God. The magnet flips. The magnet that was repelling God. You know, you take a magnet and and the things are moving away, but all of a sudden it flips and then it just is like, wow. Well, when we turn from our sin and return to God. There's a clinging to him for life. We accept his invitation. His invitation to find your joy in him. We actually start to actually find our joy in him. We start to actually drink at his fountain. And it's good. We start to taste and see the Lord is good. This is what repentance is. It's I'm no longer finding my joy at that other fountain and that other tasting and that other, you know, the smorgasbord. I've found the joy of the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore found in him. And so faith and repentance, they they go together. They're like Siamese twins that can never be separated or they die. You have to have both and they have to remain intertwined for life. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Christian Life, he says this, I think this is helpful. If we truly believe in Christ, it must be penitently If we repent of sin, it must be believingly. 
Furthermore, these twin responses of the grace of God are not only joined together at their birth, they remain inseparable throughout the the whole of life. So just as we continue to trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, we continue to lead a life of repentance. So when John the Baptist comes preparing the way for Jesus and says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, the heart of faith says, Jesus is that king. Jesus is the king and he's now come. And I come now in faith like the wise men in the, in the last chapter and I come to worship him rather than Herod who refused to repent but rather tried to kill him and get rid of him and have nothing to do with him. We come in repentance and faith. And then this next command is to prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now here are some verses that we often skip over and miss who Jesus is in these verses. Think about what's being said here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, direct quote from Isaiah 40 that was read already in the service. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the way of the Lord. Who is Jesus? Well... You see, when you, when you, if you were to look at this in the Old Testament, and I don't know if your New Testament Bible does this or not, <clears throat> excuse me, but in the Old Testament, if something is in all capital letters when it's the word Lord, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. If it's not all capital letters, then it's the word Adonai. Both can be translated as Lord, but Adonai can refer to a human king or human Lord, whereas Yahweh or Jehovah is the covenant name of God. So Isaiah says, prepare the way of Yahweh, all caps, Lord. That's the, that's the big covenant name of God. And John the Baptist says, I've come to prepare the way of Yahweh, and here he is, Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. My favorite verse to show Jehovah Witnesses when they come knocking on my door. After I tell them, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Jesus is with us. God is with us. Aren't you, aren't you, do you love Emmanuel. Do you love that, will you become a Jehovah Witness? Will you become a worshiper of Jesus? Because Jesus is Jehovah. That's who John came preparing the way for. He's preparing the way of the Lord, the way of Yahweh, and Yahweh is Jesus. And we know from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40 that was read this morning that the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That was one of our Advent readings. What might that be referring to? Sunday school answer, children? Jesus. Because the glory of Yahweh was revealed. It's one of the clearest verses in the Bible that Jesus is God. And Jesus is Jehovah. The king has come. The invasion has entered into our world. And I'm sure some of you have heard the lyrics from Handel's Messiah that says, every valley shall be exalted. I'm not going to sing it for you. And every mountain and every hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places plain. The text is from Isaiah 40. I wonder... Have you ever thought about what that means? What does that mean? I mean, every valley be exalted, every, I mean, it sounds really nice and flowery. I, I heard that for 15 years, had no clue what it meant. It just sounded nice. You know, the idea is when, when Isaiah wrote this and when John the Baptist preached it, there wasn't any asphalt. There wasn't pavement. 
It wasn't super heavy-duty asphalt rolling vehicles. You know, there weren't really, you know, roads and smooth roads like we have today. I mean, you can't even watch, you know, the movie 1917, which I just saw this week. Great movie. You can't even watch a movie that's, that's picturing a scene from 100 years ago and realize these roads were bad. The roads were terrible. And how messy the roads were 100 years ago. I can't fathom what they were 2,000 years ago. And how vehicles get stuck on bad roads. And how you have to clear the debris. And they would, you know, the enemy would drop trees and fell big trees across the road because, well, that's going to slow down the enemy. Enemy's not going to be able to get to us today. They got a massive tree they got to clear out of the way before the vehicles can get through. So every valley being exalted and the rough places being made plain is you've got to prepare the way. You see, and isn't that what we've done with Jesus? It's like the king is coming and we're like the enemy running away, dropping trees. <laughs> He's not coming to me. I'm gonna make some debris and keep him away from me. And now the prophet is calling for just the opposite. The king is coming. All the obstacles that you've laid in the way in your heart, as Hosea would say, it's time to break up the fallow ground. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. You've plowed iniquity and you've reaped injustice. What the prophet is saying is in your plowing of iniquity that our selfishness and our sin hurts other people. It's not right. It's an injustice to others in our neglect of them in our painful words, in our deeds, in our spoiling of shalom for others, in our not doing good and seeking the good in others, we've, we've plowed iniquity and reaped injustice. And so now the prophet's coming along and saying, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places plain. It was a heralded announcement, the king is coming, roll out the red carpet, so to speak, Get those stinking roads that are full of massive potholes and gullies and boulders and wagon ruts. Get them filled and fixed and make it as level as possible because the king is coming. The king needs to travel on the best road and a road that is worthy of the king. The king is coming, but the point is figurative and speaks to the highway of our hearts. It's a call to repentance that all the ruts of our heart are to be made right and clean and, and the garbage in our life has to be thrown out. You can't say, this road to my heart is closed and put up a detour sign and say, bridge is out. That's not heeding the call. Elizabeth Elliot, who went to be with the Lord, and she's Jim Elliot, if you remember the story of the Alka Indians that went down to reach a primitive tribe in the 50s. And, and Elizabeth Elliot wrote many books, but one of them was called No Graven Image, and it was published in 1966, and Tim Keller loves to talk about this. This is like a classic illustration that he gives, but she published this book in 1966, and it's about this woman who gives her life to God. She becomes a missionary. Her name's Margaret Sparehawk. It's a fiction book, but in her end, in the end of her life, it all goes bad. Her Bible translation is, is all this years of work, it gets destroyed, and everything basically falls apart. And she submits that for the press. Well, I can tell you, it wasn't received well in 1966. 
She said people read that book and wrote her letters and said, I do not believe in a God who would ever let this sort of thing happen to anybody who really lived for him, especially a missionary, right? And so Keller gets a lot of mileage out of using this because he says, what he says is, is what they were saying to her was they have little maps in their hearts. They have little roads. And they say, I'll believe in a God if he does this. And Keller says, your heart is your God. Your culture is your God. Your agenda is the God. You're not treating him as, as a king. He can't come. He won't come. He shall not come if you say he's not going to have to use this little alleyway with all of his hosts. You say, If you say, I will only believe in a God who does this for me, you've got to break up that fallow ground. King's coming. That that, that highway's not going to be big enough for the Lord to come down. You see, the closing part of the book with Elizabeth Elliot, No Graven Image, with Margaret Sparehawk, she comes to term with God being God. And she says this, If he's God, I adapt to his road He does not adapt to me. If God was my assistant, then he betrayed me. But if I'm his assistant, all this trouble in my life has liberated me. It liberated me. I was finally ready to let him be God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every valley shall be exalted. She got it. And now that valley is exalting God. You see repentance is repenting of every day. We want Jesus. We want him a lot. We want him to be our assistant. Come be my assistant and make all my plans go smoothly and make much of me. And repentance is realizing, wait a minute, I'm his assistant. My life is yours. I'm repenting today of of wanting you to follow me. I'm gonna follow you. And so now this call is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And can you imagine John the Baptist looking at these people and saying, you brood of vipers? I mean, we were playing a game this week with our family, and it's one of those games, and some of you guys play this where you close your eyes and you gotta stick out your thumb, and if you're evil, then you, know, you wag your thumb around, and the other people, anybody play? What do, I forget what they're called, but they're, there's these spy games, and, you're try, and some of you are evil. There's like two people that are evil, three are good, and you're trying to figure out who the evil people are, and the evil people have to lie. It's a game of teaching you how to be deceitful. <laughs> and so one, in this one hand, we open our eyes, and it's, I'm bad, Kim is bad, and Elise is bad. And I'm like, man, this is, this is hilarious. So, you know, we had some other people there. And so Kim purposely played her hand one time that she played it like it was good. And so Haddon thought, well, Kim is good. And so the next time he included her in and he knew the other person was good and then she put a bad card in and he just looked at her and said, you snake. (laughs) And it was so funny that I just lost it. And he had to know I was evil at that point because... I just couldn't stop laughing that he just called his mother, you snake, you know. (laughs) When you call somebody a snake, it's not a term of endearment, is it? It's a term of utter hypocrisy. You have pretended to be this one way, and it turns out you're totally this way. You're a snake. Well, 
John the Baptist says to all the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this would be the church-going elites. This would be like the elders, the deacons, the presbytery, the the in-crowd, as best you can get. And he says to the in-crowd, the holy crowd, the church people, the covenant people of God, that'd be like us here this morning. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Wow. And he just instantly goes into it. Don't presume upon your pedigree. Don't think that because of your, you're born into this family, because you've got some great family, your father's Abraham. Don't even start calling God Abraham, you know, your father's Abraham. God can raise up anything he wants. Just raise up these stones to call. Uh, to, he can, he's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Who do you think you are? You see, and he's telling them that you've got to bear fruit then in keeping with repentance. You know, if you say, well, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was nine. Well, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, if you're looking back to some point in time that you prayed some prayer, well, what, you asked him into your life to do what? To be your assistant? Because that's really what I did when I was nine. I asked him into my life, come be my assistant. It wasn't until I was 17 that I finally said, well, I guess, you know, trying to make you serve me isn't working so well. See, don't tell me how you've repented. Repentance is proved in a changed life, a changed lifestyle, changed habits, changed heart. The inward seed of the Holy Spirit begins to renovate our life, and it begins by demolishing, demolishing idols and strongholds. The prophets repeatedly warned against a false repentance and an outward repentance. Isaiah cried out on his day, these people honor me with their lips. They worship, they sing the hymns, they, they, they recite the, 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 the scriptures, but their hearts are far from me. And Hosea said, O Israel and Judah, what shall I do with you? For your love vanishes like a morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. As soon as the sun comes up, the dew is gone. That's like your love for me. It's gone by the time you get home for Sunday lunch. And Joel says in in Joel, rip rip your heart, not your garments. Rend your hearts, not your garments. And return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And then we get to the New Testament and Paul says things like, you began well. What happened to all your joy? And Galatians, to the people there. And the writer of Hebrews says, you have need of repentance. The people of God were shrinking back. And John says in Revelation to the church in Philadelphia that I've got one thing against you. You lost your first love. And the call is to repent and do the works that you did at first. Paul says it to the Colossian church, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, and see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Let me put that in 21st century language. Don't let Netflix and Instagram or some teacher or professor at some fancy school take you captive to empty deceit. Jesus is Lord as you received him, now walk in him, rooted in, as you began, continue to grow in him. Once again, Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. The paradox of spiritual growth is that as faith deepens, it brings with it new levels of joy and assurance. So also as repentance deepens, it brings ever more profound an awareness of our need of Christ. The purpose of God is this 
is clear. The more we sense our need, the more we shall find our need met in Christ. The more we find our need met in Christ, the nearer we will come to him. The nearer we come to him, the more we will discover our hearts saying, if you, O Lord, should mark our sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so we take John the Baptist's illustration seriously and soberly. He gives these two illustrations that one is the axe is laid at the root of the tree and the other is the winnowing fork with the wheat and cleaning his threshing floor. And the first one, and both of these, is the idea that you have been made as image bearers of God. And God has made you for a purpose. And his purpose is to bear fruit for him, to do the good works, to walk in those good works which he's made you to walk in. And he's made, when he make, makes trees, he wants those trees to grow. And when, you know, you have, um, so the idea is that there's something good here. But what's happening is the good is not accomplishing the good. And so if the good is not accomplishing the good, the tree is just bearing now bad fruit. It's cut down, thrown into the fire. And then the same with the winnowing fork illustration is that you would take the wheat and you would thresh it and you'd throw it up into the wheat wind and because the wheat was heavier, it would come back down and the chaff would be blown away. And the idea is that Jesus, in verse 12, he's, you see this sovereign authority about Jesus. Just look at the personal pronouns in verse 12. It's his winnowing fork. It's in his hand. It's his threshing floor. He will clear, it's his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you think you're escaping Jesus, his authority is clear. And the imagery here is the imagery of fire. And fire is the imagery that Jesus can talk about all through the Gospels about hell. And hell is not a popular subject these days, and obviously I wouldn't be, you know, we're not trying to... Uh, be popular amongst people, it's the word of God. And this is what he said. John the Baptist is warning about what? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If there's nothing to flee from, if there really is no wrath, we don't need to be here this morning. Jesus didn't need to come for us. We don't need Christmas. We don't need Easter. But, but there is a problem. And the problem, hopefully, the bad news will become the best news because the reality is he is coming and he's coming in this fire of judgment. We love motivations of grace and mercy and love, but not fear. Yet the Bible employs all of these motivations and we shouldn't shun them. Scripture refers to hell. Just listen to these references. Scripture refers to hell as an eternal fire, as an eternal punishment, as eternal destruction, as eternal judgment, the fire that's unquenchable, the worm that does not die, the smoke of torment that goes up forever and continues night and day to all eternity. This punishment is described as weeping and gnashing of teeth, anguish and distress, never-ending fire, and an undying worm. And that might seem unfair to you this morning, but John Frame in his systematic theology says it shouldn't surprise us to have God tell us that our sins are infinitely offensive and merit an eternal penalty. It's up to him to determine penalties, and we know from Scripture that his decisions are perfectly just. And when we gather around the throne singing his praises in the eternal state, nobody will raise objections to God's justice. We will praise him without reservation. 
Revelation 15, three and four says, great and are amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And you might be thinking, well, I like Jesus in the manger. I like the Jesus I heard about last month. This doesn't sound like the Jesus you preached about last month. Well, Jesus' second advent is distinct. His second coming is distinct from his first coming. So I just want you to think through the difference. Listen for a minute. In the first coming, Jesus comes with meekness. In the second coming, Jesus comes with majesty. In his first coming, Jesus comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But in his second coming, he comes as the Lion of Judah who rids all evil and casts everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life into hell. The first coming, Jesus comes condescending as God who stoops to our humanity. But in the second coming, Jesus comes as the transcendent God who shows us the fullness of his majesty. In his first coming, he comes so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. But in the second coming, he comes so that we may marvel at his might. In the first coming, he comes in the back door, humbly riding on a donkey. But in the second coming, he comes with a sword on his thigh, riding on a white horse with the, with the tattoo on the leg that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords imprinted on him. In his first coming, he comes with the promise of peace and good news. In the second coming, <clears throat> he comes with the fulfillment of making peace. In the first coming, Jesus comes bringing hope to sinners that there's good news found in trusting Christ. In the second coming, he brings condemnation to sinners that there's bad news found in not trusting Christ. In the first coming, Jesus gives grace to believers. In the second coming, Jesus gives glory to believers. In the first coming, Jesus comes to help us in our afflictions. In the second coming, he comes to heal us from all our afflictions. In the first advent, his kindness leads us to repentance. In the second advent, his wrath leads, leads him to bring retribution and punishment against those who've rejected him. When he comes again in this regal, majestic, enthroned on a white horse in victory, when he, his breath destroys the lawless one, crushing the nations that have opposed him, ridding all evil and emblazing holiness that makes us fall on our faces like John did, as though he were dead. In the second advent is the day of judgment. But today... This morning, this is the day of salvation. In the first advent, Jesus is the joy at the bottom of our tears. In the second advent, Jesus is our joy who takes away all our tears. You see, we're, we're in that already not yet kingdom. And Jesus comes bringing in the king and he says, the king is here. And so John is his baptism was this idea of identification. And, and, and it seems to me a little bit like well, is it the chicken and the egg and the catch-22 and what comes first, the cart or the horse? You're calling people to repent, but we can't repent unless God enables us to repent. And, and even John, or John is saying this is a preparatory thing. This is to prepare you and to make straight his path. And, and yet what John is saying is the one coming after me, I'm just baptizing you with water, but the one coming after me, he doesn't just bring the preparatory he brings in purification. He brings the power to change your life. He's gonna baptize you in the spirit with fire. 
You see, and he's directly fulfilling this great promise of Ezekiel 36. So if you're wondering this morning, well, what comes first, you know? If, if I, do I gotta leave my lifestyle of sin? Do I gotta quit fornicating first? Do I gotta quit doing that? Or do I, do I gotta quit worrying and then, and then I can come to Jesus? Or do I come to Jesus first and then my worries will, will cease? You see, and, you, and sometimes in scripture they go back and forth, but what John is saying is Jesus is coming. You're to prepare the way. But this is what the great promise of Ezekiel is. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Do you want that this morning? Have you experienced that? Have you ever left a sin because you love Jesus? I love Jesus today, therefore I'm not gonna keep thinking that thought. I'm not gonna harbor that bitterness. I'm not going to look at that lustful image. I'm not going to elevate myself and, and set out my mousetraps for praise so that they'll acknowledge these little things that I've done that were good so that I can look better before people. I'm not going to condemn and criticize these other people because I love Jesus. Are you leaving sins because the motivation behind it is Jesus is better? That, then you know that the Spirit is at work in you. And if not, then you pray, Lord, give me this. Give me a new heart. Take out my heart of stone. Take out this filthy heart and give me the heart of repentance. Give this to me. Cause me to delight in you. Cause me to want you. You see, the whole imagery that Jesus is getting at in the meditation reflection verse in your bulletin is how do you get this? It's abide in Jesus. If you abide in Jesus, you're attached to the vine. And when you're attached to the vine, then you're gonna bear much fruit. But if you're not attached to the vine, you can try all you want to bear good fruit. It's not gonna happen. It has to come from the inside out. Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, a changed life. Let's ask him to do that this morning. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit and change these hearts. Lord, we... Humble ourselves before you. Lord, none of us are ready to see you. In and of ourselves, we are feeble, foolish, fickle, and filthy. So come wash us. Make us clean by the blood of the Lamb. We need you. We ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, that you'd change our lives from the inside out, that we live not for petty, paltry things, but that we would live for glory, that we would see that you are worthy of living for. Renew our purpose for living and for life. May we bring honor and glory to you, and may we do much good for our neighbor. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.